Uh, good morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would, would turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at what the Lord has to say to us from this chapter this morning as we continue working our way through the book of Acts. I'm a bottom line guy, and so um, whenever I um, read a book or think about what someone says, I'm always trying to um, bottom line it one way or the other. And when you think about the Bible, the Bible is a library of books. It's 66 books. It's very long, and it's very easy to get lost in various aspects of the Bible and wondering what it's all about. And so uh, one of the things I try to do in various ways is bottom line it for us and bottom line it for myself to keep our focus on what the heart of the Bible really is. And the reality is the heart of the Bible is that uh, God is good. We just sang about that. God is a good, good God. And he created us to enjoy his goodness and to manifest his goodness. He created us to be holy and to be happy. And that that holiness and happiness is very much related to enjoying his love and expressing his love. The problem is we're not holy and therefore we're not truly and fully and uh, forever happy because we're sinners. We've rebelled against God uh, apart from grace. And therefore, the good news is that God has provided a Savior, which we sing about every Sunday. We sing about Jesus because he is the key to reconciliation with the God who created us to be holy and to be happy. And the good thing is he's an able and willing Savior for everyone. No one is excluded. For every single person we meet, as Christians, we can know that we have some good news for them, that Jesus is able to save and he's willing to save if they will come to him for mercy and if they will entrust their lives to him. And so that's the heart of the Christian life. That's what it's all about, is knowing that our hope is in Jesus to be accepted by God and to be transformed into his image. The chapter that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 10 is very much about that hope that we have as Christians. And I'd like to work our way through it section by section. It's a long chapter. And, and so I'm going to start with the first eight verses of Acts chapter 10. Um, as we think through what is going on here in this passage, uh, we're at a point in the book of Acts where Pentecost has happened. Jesus has ascended, gone back to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit um, the, the apostles are beginning to preach and teach, and yet things haven't moved um, as far as God intends for them to move in terms of the outreach of the gospel. And it's at this point in the book of Acts that we really begin to see, and we see uh, Peter and the other disciples beginning to see what God's true intent is in sending Jesus. It's not just about saving the Jewish people. It goes far beyond that. And if, if you're not Jewish this morning, you can be thankful that God's intent goes beyond just the Jewish people. And so let me read for us what we find in the first eight verses of Acts chapter 10. It says this, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. 
and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we have uh, recorded for us an afternoon vision. We have a man named Cornelius who is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman soldier, a centurion, which means he was in charge of 100 men. And he was part of a larger group, the Italian cohort, which was about 600 men. And so he was someone who had some knowledge of God. It says he prayed to God. It says he gave alms or gifts of charity to the poor, uh, to the Jewish people. And it says that at at about the ninth hour, which would have been at three o'clock in the afternoon, he was praying and he has a vision. He has a vision of an angel, an angel who speaks to him and says, Cornelius, uh, God is aware of your prayers and your gifts of charity. He's remembered them. And therefore, he wants you to do this. He wants you to send for Simon, who's also known as Peter, in Joppa, and ask him to come to you. And that's what Cornelius does. One of the things that Acts chapter 10 is about is how God saves people that we would not expect him to save. And he may do it in ways we would not expect him to do. Uh, There's an article that I read this week by a man named Darren Carlson, who evidently has worked with um, Muslim refugees in Athens, Greece. And he talks about um, the various experiences that Muslims have had who've converted from Islam uh, to Christianity. They've become Christians. And it's interesting, the title of the article I read was, When Muslims Dream of Jesus. And he talks about the fact that studies have been made of Muslims who've come to Christ, who've believed in Christ, and they ask them, what what did God do uh, to bring you to Christ? And obviously, they'll talk about the Bible and preaching the gospel and all the things that we would expect them to say about how God brings people to Christ. At the same time, though, many of them will talk about actually having a vision or a dream of some kind. And many times those dreams will be dreams of Jesus. There's an organization called Mission Frontiers. Uh, they looked at the experience of, or the testimonies of 600 Muslims who came to Christ, and they said 25% of them said they experienced some, some kind of dream that God used in leading them to faith in Christ. Um, they've looked at those experiences and they've tried to put them in certain categories in terms of what kinds of dreams did they have. And some uh, had great dreams of Jesus speaking scripture to them. Some had dreams or visions of Jesus 
telling them to do something. Some of them had dreams or visions where they felt clean or felt at peace. Or some of them had dreams where they saw a man in white uh, appearing to them in one way, shape, or form. And so one illustration of this is there was a family that was in Kurdistan, and every member of their household had a dream at the same time, had the same dream. And they were told to cross this river, whatever river it was, I don't know, uh, so that they could find living water. And so they all had the same dream. The next day, they all crossed the river, and someone gave them a Bible. And his testimony at this point is, and they brought that Bible into Europe, because obviously they were refugees from their Muslim country. And it was just one of the illustrations that he gives in the article about how a dream or a vision was a part of what God was doing in leading people to Christ. There's another story that he mentions of a Persian um, who had migrated um, into maybe Greece, I'm not sure, doesn't say, but it probably was in Athens, Greece, at this refugee center. And uh, this uh, man from Iran, he shows up early in the morning, about 6 a.m. at this refugee center, and he talks to a Persian pastor. And he tells him that uh, that night, beforehand, he saw one someone dressed in white who raised his hand and said, stand up and follow me. And the man, this Persian man, uh, asked him, who are you? And in the dream, the man replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through me. So the Persian man who showed up at the refugee center talking to the pastor asked the pastor, who is that? Who is that man? Why is he asking me to follow him? What am I supposed to do? And the pastor said, do you know what this is? And he said, no. He said, it's a Bible. And um, he said he'd never seen a Bible before. The man, the Persian pastor, turns to the book of Revelation and he reads where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the man starts crying. And he says, how can I accept him? How can I follow him? And so obviously the um, pastor shared the gospel with him and gave him a Bible. And he said, the pastor said to him, you need to be careful with this Bible. You need to hide it because, you know, going to be hard out there. And the man said, I don't need to hide this Bible. Uh, the Jesus I've met is greater than any Muslim that I know. And he went out and he later on, he brought back 10 other uh, Persian friends and said, these guys want a Bible. And so you've got these experiences that people are having. And the encouragement that I want to give us in light of those kinds of things that have happened more recently, at least that's what people are testifying to. But especially in light of what we see here in Acts chapter 10, is you've got a man named Cornelius who is not a believer in Jesus. He is not a Christian. He is not saved. But he is praying. He is giving gifts of um, charity to the Jewish people, the chosen people. And what I want to see, first of all, is that 
This is an illustration of the truth that God will always get the gospel to those who are seeking him one way or the other. If we are seeking truth, if we really are seeking God, God will find a way to get the gospel to us. I mean, he says in the Old Testament, I've been reading through Isaiah in my quiet time, and in Isaiah 45:22, which is the verse that the preacher who preached when Spurgeon got saved, uh, it says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So if God tells all people, turn to me and be saved, then if we turn to him, he will save us and he will do whatever has to be done to make sure we have the truth we need in order to be saved by grace through faith. It says in Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me. If you search for me with all your heart, that's a promise. If you seek me, I will let you find me. And so that should be an encouragement to all of us, whether we're Christians or not, that God promises that those who seek him will not be disappointed. If we seek God, he will let us find him in whatever way we need to find him, whatever our situation might be. That's why Jesus said, seek and you will find. Keep praying, keep asking and seeking and knocking. And God says, I will let you find. I'll open, I'll provide what you need. Well, look at the next uh, section, verses 9 through 16. So um, Cornelius does what the angel tells him to do and sends a group of three men to find Peter. And it says in verse 9, On the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So Peter's hungry, uh, but he's praying, and he has a dream about food, which is pretty natural, right? You're hungry, you dream about food. But in this case, this dream about food was meant to teach him something. Meant to was meant to open his eyes to see the truth about something that he did not yet see. Even though he was Peter, even though he was saved, and he was called by God to proclaim the truth of Jesus, he still was inadequate in his understanding of the implications and the broadness of the gospel. And and so we see that this the point of this vision where you've got these animals coming down on this sheet of some kind, coming to the ground, and Peter has a voice, you know, kill, cook, eat, essentially. And Peter says, no way. This is stuff that I've never eaten, and I will never eat that. And, and the reason why is because if you look at the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 11, for instance, there are clean and unclean animals. And God says you can eat these clean animals, but you are not to eat these unclean animals. And people have tried to figure out what the difference between uh, those animals were. Obviously, you could eat 
um, goat and lamb and, and bulls and stuff like that. But you weren't so supposed to eat things like cats or catfish or pigs or certain distinctions that were made there. And some people said, well, it's because some of those uh, animals were, uh, weren't very healthy. And so you shouldn't eat them because they're unhealthy. Well, if they were unhealthy in the Old Testament, you'd think they'd be unhealthy in the New Testament. So it really wasn't an issue of health that God was looking at. Um, Some have said maybe it was um, because of worship. Maybe because so often pigs were used in pagan worship, God didn't want them to use pigs in their worship. But pagans also use bulls and things like that, which they did use in the worship of Israel. So you can't really say it was about that, even though uh, that's understandable. The reality is, when it comes right down to it, um, all we know is God said, don't eat this, you can eat this. That God, by his sovereign choice, declared some clean and some unclean, and he didn't really tell us exactly why. But he must have had good reason. And in this case, he is using this illustration of how God removed, and he did, in Jesus. Jesus earlier said, uh, basically, uh, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. And and the comment on that is, in this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Um, So this does have the implication that there are no food restrictions anymore, even for the Jewish people. But there was something more going on here. This wasn't just about food. This was about people about the issue of putting people in clean and unclean categories and people that were within the bounds of God's kindness, love, and grace and those who were outside of that and could never be within those boundaries. So the point is, and the voice comes, the voice of God, and says the point of this, Peter, is what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And he had the dream three times, which means... It took him a while and even thought about it and had to meditate on it to get an idea of just how hard it was for the Jewish people to really come to the the realization that God really intended to open the doors of grace to all people. As you can think about the fact that um, Jesus at one point uh, goes into the temple, actually twice he, he cleansed the temple. And at one point, the reference is, he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. The Jews had set up uh, their uh, the thing, the animals that they were selling and everything else in the court of the Gentiles. They really weren't concerned about the Gentiles worshiping God. And Jesus was very upset about that. And he quotes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, where in the, in the Old Testament, which Peter should have known, it says in Isaiah 56, 7, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So Jesus was not happy with the idea that the Jewish people did not see that God wanted Gentiles to worship him. Um, If you look at Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown and makes some really radical statements. He says, you know what? In the days of Elijah... There were plenty of widows in the land of Israel, but God only cared for this Gentile widow. 
And there were plenty of lepers in the land of Israel in the days of Elisha, but God only cared for this leper who was not a Jew. And you know what they did? They drove him to a cliff and tried to throw him to his death when he said those kinds of things. What happened to Paul later on in the book of Acts, Acts 22 Paul shares his testimony. He says, God has sent me to the Gentiles to tell them the good news. And they say, this man isn't worthy to live for such crazy talk. It's not new. What is the book of Jonah about? Jonah throws a fit and gets upset because God shows mercy and compassion to Gentiles, pagans especially those that had mistreated the Jewish people. In my mind, it's kind of like um, Jonah saying, um, those people aren't worthy of mercy. They're not worthy of grace. It'd be like, um, I thought about Jeffrey Dahmer. I mentioned him last week. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer claims, before he died, he claimed to become a Christian. And I can imagine if I was part of the family that had a son who was murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer, I might find it very difficult to think that God would have mercy on him. That's the way the Jewish people looked at the Gentiles. They found it very difficult to believe that God would truly have mercy on the Gentiles. And so that's why this chapter is so important in the book of Acts. And that's why there's much made of what God does here and why it's so significant. Because it was not an easy thing for the Jewish people to accept, even among believing Jews. And so the reality is God has opened the door in Jesus that all people can be made clean through his finished work on the cross. There's another story that is told in that article that I mentioned where um, the husband of this woman gets saved while he's out of the country. I think he left um, Iran, went to Greece, became a Christian, and he would call his wife, who was still in Iran, and, and share the gospel with her. And she came to the conclusion that she had to divorce her husband because she wanted to be a good Muslim. But she decided that before she did that, she was going to look all up all the verses in the Quran about Jesus and see if there were any in there. And she said she was amazed how often Jesus was mentioned in the Quran. Then she said, I need to get a Bible and start reading about Jesus. And she said that this, she said, I was in my room alone um, while she was reading the Bible and the whole room became white and I felt completely clean. At that moment, through trusting in Jesus, I became a Christian. And the point I want to make is her experience of trusting in Jesus was also a very vivid experience of becoming clean. And that's the point of what is going on in Acts chapter 10, is that God cleans the unclean. He makes the unclean clean. The Jews saw the Gentiles as being unclean. They need to, needed to see, though, was that through Jesus, the Gentiles could be clean just like they could be clean through Jesus, that there was not a barrier there. And so 
The idea of clean means forgiven. It says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea of being clean is the idea of being forgiven. Cleansed from my guilt. Having nothing that separates me from a right relationship with God. And so the reality is that God wants us to see ourselves as clean if we are trusting in Jesus. Not because we don't have any sin anymore, but because Jesus has taken care of that sin, past, present, and future. We should still confess our sins, but we should rest in Jesus as the one who's taking care of those sins, and we should see ourselves as forgiven. Does that mean we don't fight sin? No, we should fight sin, but we fight sin that's been forgiven. We fight forgiven sin. And therefore, we can fight it with joy. We can fight it with hope. We can fight it with confidence that we have God who, as Mark said, is for us even as we continue to fight the sin in our lives. And so God has opened the door for all to become clean when he sent Jesus. And and that includes anybody in your life that you see as unclean. Maybe so unclean you don't really want to be around them too much. God can clean them up. And the fact is, we're all in the same boat. We're all dirtier than we know, more unclean than we know, and yet Jesus is sufficient to clean us all. And we can rest in that, rejoice in that, and we can share that with people who are unclean. Um, The next section is uh, verses 17 through 23. Let me go ahead and read that for us. This is how uh, God works in Peter's life to build on the vision and to lead him to do what he needs to do in light of the vision. Verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion... A righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And so Peter has this vision of these unclean animals that God says, don't consider them unclean anymore. And so he's still wrestling with what to think about that, what to do about that. And the Spirit speaks to him. The Bible doesn't say exactly what that sounded like or looked like, but somehow it was very clear to Peter that God was speaking to him and telling him, even though you're a little unsettled about the idea of going with these men don't be. There's there some men here. Uh, they're going to tell you to come with them or ask you to come with them. Don't let your 
uh, unsettled conscience keep you from doing what I'm calling you to do. And what I, what I want to just have us think a little bit about is um, the reality is, the application is that God will give us whatever direction we need to trust and love. Now, obviously, Peter knew the Bible. He knew that the Bible said, eat these things, don't eat those things. But God comes to Peter and tells him that things have changed. That was under the old covenant. This is the new covenant. And so we're sort of at a transition stage here with Peter and the apostles in the New Testament. Things are transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. And so what God does is he gives Peter the help he needs to trust him in the way he needs to trust him and to love in the way he needs to love him. Now, is God still giving revelation beyond the Bible? No. We believe that God has given us in his word the the revelation we need, all that we need to trust him in the ways we need to trust him and all that we need to love in the ways we need to love. But does that mean that God doesn't still work in various ways to lead us to trust his word and to follow his word? No, it doesn't mean that God isn't still active by his spirit to lead us to embrace what the word says and to do what the word says. So there is still application for us, even though it is different. We're not in the same transitional period that we find in the book of Acts, and yet there is uh, application for us, that God will give us what we need. To me, a great illustration of that is found in a number of places in the Bible, but even in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, excuse me, the chapter, Psalm 119, which is all about the importance of the written word of God. We should never minimize the written word of God. And yet when when the psalmist in verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. He's obviously saying, Lord, help me to trust and obey your word. But when he talks about make me walk and incline my heart, there could be all kinds of ways God might work in our lives through people, apart from people, through experiences, apart from different experiences, to get us to trust what we find in the Bible and to do what we find in the Bible. And so uh, sometimes I think we can uh, think that because the Bible is all that we need um, to trust God and to love, that that, doesn't, that that means then God really isn't necessarily doing anything beyond that in our lives, but I think he does. And I think the testimonies that we find coming from like what we see happening in the Muslim world is a testimony to that. But what I've noticed as I've read these testimonies, it always comes back to the importance of the Bible. It always comes back to the importance of the preached gospel. That's never lost sight of for those who are truly believing in Jesus. In fact, even if they have a dream that God uses to lead them to Jesus, the first thing they want is a Bible to give to other people. They're not just saying, you need to have a dream. The word of God is still paramount if we're truly trusting Jesus. Another illustration of this is that there was um, a lady in Athens in this refugee camp 
who had heard the gospel but was really struggling to believe because of the implications of believing as a Muslim, which it's not an easy thing. There could be serious consequences if you try to leave Islam. Um, she went home one day despondent, uh, wrestling with the things that she was hearing, and she prayed this prayer. She said, you know what, God, since I have absolutely no excuse, absolutely none, I have run out of excuses. I don't know what to do, but following you means I have to deny everything I have believed and everything all of my family, generation after generation, believed. I can't be in the middle. I have to either follow you or not. I can't do it myself. It's just hard to make that step. I need you to help me. So she's praying like that. And she said after that, and she doesn't know exactly what was going on when this happened, whether she was awake or asleep, which it sounds like Paul, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure. She says that there was a man in white who walked into the room. And interestingly enough, her response in this situation was, don't come close to me. You're holy and I am a sinner. Do not get close to me. Which is what Peter said when Jesus uh, worked a miracle in his life. In the vision, the man replied, saying her name, I told you and I tell you again, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. That day she believed the gospel and was saved. Romans chapter 10 makes it very clear in verses 14 and 15. Uh, how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear without a preacher? And so it's God's way to um, save people through the preaching of the gospel. So I don't want you to hear me saying that God saves apart from that. The rule is God saves through the preaching of the gospel, but God can work in some extraordinary ways to um, open people's eyes to the truth of the gospel that they're hearing, which is a great, great encouragement, I think, to all of us. It should be an encouragement to all of us. Well, um, look at verses 24 through 33. It says in verse 24, On the following day he entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he walked, excuse me, as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Peter and those with him uh, go uh, to 
Caesarea, which is north of Joppa, about 30-something miles away, and they show up. And when they show up, Cornelius has called for his relatives and his friends, and there's a big group of people waiting there to hear what Peter has to say. And Cornelius uh, says that um, a man stood before him, an angel stood before him, and said that his alms had been remembered, his prayer had been heard before God. Now, the idea of God remembering those things is the idea of God responding to those things. God uh, choosing to graciously and mercifully bless him in light of those things. And so what's happening here is that what's taking place is that God overcomes the barriers that separate us from him and others. A big deal in the New Testament is the issue of the division between Jews and Gentiles. Paul writes a lot about it. He talks about the the fact that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. And Peter says here to them, you know, um, you know how unlawful it is for me to be here. You know that how unusual this is. You know how um, a lot of people are going to be unhappy about me being here. And you read the next chapter, you find out just how unhappy they were about Peter doing what he did. It was not something that Jews were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles because of the issue of unclean food. They could, uh, in their minds, be contaminated just by being around Gentiles in various ways, although their attitudes had gone beyond what it said in the Old Testament, that God had not forbidden a lot of the things that they were not doing, which is typical of us as sinners. We tend to, one way or the other, misunderstand what God's word says and often misapply what God's word says. And that's what was happening among the Jewish people in general. And certainly Peter himself wrestled with this. And not only uh, here, but later on, you recall that Paul has to publicly rebuke Peter for not eating with the Gentile believers, but only eating with the Jewish believers, as it says in in Galatians chapter 2. So, This was no small thing, no little thing that had to be overcome. And the reality is, if you think about that, what is there in my life and in your life that is the same way? There are things that God says are true, that God says ought to be a part of our lives, but we really wrestle with that. We really struggle with that. I mean, if Peter could struggle like he did, and certainly we can too in terms of really embracing what the Bible says and really doing what the Bible says. We should not be surprised if we personally or those around us struggle. That's why the Bible tells us to, to be patient with all men, even if we might have to admonish them, even if we have to uh, try to help the weak or comfort those who are going through various things. We need to be patient with each other and realize that there can be really some significant things that we all have to think differently about and live differently in light of, and that's what we see in this situation. There's another um, story that's told in this uh, uh, um, article about an elderly woman in in, um, Greece who had come from Afghanistan, And she was really going through a hard time, so she went to the refugee center for the help that she could get, but she didn't really want to have anything to do with the gospel. Um, When the pastor 
there who was praying for her and, and, and encouraging her to trust in King Jesus would say those things, uh, she would just laugh. But then one day she came by the uh, center there and it was closed. There was no one there, so she just sat down. And her testimony was all of a sudden there was this bright light coming from behind her. And she began to cover her eyes and then the light began to get brighter and brighter. And then she saw a shadow in front of her and she heard a voice speaking in her language that said, my daughter, my daughter, the door is open for you, come. And she said, no, the door is closed. And the voice said again, I am the son of God, Jesus. The door is open for you, my daughter. I am the door. And she said that all of a sudden, the light came on and she experienced a joy and a peace and she trusted in Jesus. She said many times, you pastor have encouraged me to pray that God would speak to me. I thought it was blasphemy, but now I know that Jesus is alive. And immediately what she did was that she started handing out Bibles. She didn't go around telling people you need to have the same experience I have. She began having, telling, uh, giving people Bibles and telling them the, the gospel. And that's what we should do. Well, we just need to realize that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. No one. Even those who laugh in the face of the gospel tomorrow might be worshiping at the feet of Jesus. That's good news. That's good news. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. She was looking for rest for her soul. Jesus said, Come to me. And she found it. She found the rest she was looking for. Well, look at the next section, verse 34 says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the, excuse me, in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Cornelius had an experience with a vision of an angel. But that's not what God used to save him. What God used to save him was Peter preaching the gospel. That's what 
Peter came to do. That's what Peter did. He told him about Jesus. He told him uh, who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And so we have to realize that even if God uses various experiences and various things to get people's attention and to help in various ways, that does not mean there is not a need for the Bible or there isn't a need for people and there isn't a need for the preaching of the gospel because there is. It's, it is the way that God saves. He saves through his word and through people, you and I, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how God changes people. Uh, Peter says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't appear to everybody. He could have, but he didn't. And we tend to think, well, wouldn't it have been a little more effective if he just appeared to everybody? Then, you know, in 80, 30, or 33, whenever that was, wouldn't it be just as effective or even better if he did that today? He just appeared to us? Well, if we believe that God is good and that he's wise and that he does all things well, then the way he's chosen to do it must be the best way to do it. And what he did was he chose um, apostles to be witnesses of the resurrection. And he chose that those who believed their message would testify not of seeing the risen Jesus, but testify to the risen Jesus, that he is risen from the dead. And he calls you and I to do that as well. There's another story of a family that was on a boat going from Turkey to Greece. And on the way, their seven-year-old daughter evidently fell off the boat. And they looked for her and they couldn't find her. And they looked for a long time. And then all of a sudden, she appeared on the other side of the boat and she was all dry. And they asked her what happened. And she said, there was a man walking on the water who took me to the other side of the boat. They didn't believe her. They thought she was making up a story. They thought she must have, you know, hid on the boat somewhere or whatever. So they get to where they were going, and there was a Christian there. And um, evidently he had built a fire, and somehow they were at the fire. I'm not sure how that took place. But he began talking to them, and he was there to try to witness to them. And so he began in an unusual way. He had never begun a discussion of the gospel this way, but he said um, that they would like to know about a God who walked on water, having no idea that they had just heard that from their daughter. And they said, who are you? He said, I'm a Christian. And so he took out his Bible and he read the story of Jesus walking on the water and they just started crying. And they said, our daughter fell off the boat. We thought she was crazy because she was dry on the other side. We didn't understand it, but she kept saying, it was a man who walked on the water that took me to the other side. So their testimony was, this is what happened to our daughter. This is what she said. But that wasn't what saved them. Someone showed up and told them about Jesus. But that was part of the story. It was part of how God worked in their lives. And so God may use all kinds of experiences in people's lives, but he wants to use you and me to speak the truth of the gospel, 
to give people the word of God and those kinds of things. And that should be an encouragement to us to say that God uses his people. And we may not know their background. We may not know what they've just experienced, but God can lead us to share the truth in ways that are very effective and very timely for people. And we don't even realize how timely it is when we just share what uh, God leads us to share from his word. Well, the last point, I need to wrap up here. Last part of the chapter in verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So the reality is God used dreams and visions to bring about the preaching of the gospel in this situation with Cornelius and his relatives and his friends. And yet the dreams and the visions did not confirm whether or not they were truly saved. Now, in the article, he goes on to talk about the fact that there are some who began relying on dreams and visions and tried to encourage people simply to pray for a dream or a vision. And there were those who were even making up dreams and visions for various personal reasons like asylum and and things. And there were pastors who, Persian pastors and others, who began to say, you know what, I'm so tired people talking about dreams and visions. I, I tell people, just read a Bible. Read your Bible. And so there's no doubt that there can be a wrong application of all that I've talked about this morning. It can be a wrong application of what we find in Acts chapter 10. And yet, the reality is that if someone comes to Jesus, he will come to Jesus believing the gospel, and, it, and the, the assurance that he's a believer is not because he had a dream because there's the fruit of the Spirit in his life. He becomes a worshiper of the true God. He becomes a lover, according to the Scriptures. It says that these uh, received the Holy Spirit, and they spoke with tongues, exalting God. They're speaking the praises of God. And so what we look for in people's lives is not their experience, We look for whether or not they understand the gospel and whether or not it's bearing any fruit in their lives. But we can still rejoice in whatever experience God might have used to bring them to Christ. One of the illustrations of the caution in all of this is he tells the story of a short-term missions trip in which uh, this group from the U.S. went to Athens, Greece, and they went to this park and they held up some signs that had Greek sentences on them that said, we will interpret your dreams. And so people were coming to them and they were working with them. And at the end, they um, said, we've, they went to a pastor in the area and said, we've led 14 people to Christ. And they passed these 14 people off to this pastor and they went back home telling people how God used them to lead 14 people to Christ. And the pastor said, we never saw those people again. Never saw those people again. 
So the illustration is, it's not about dreams and interpreting dreams and experiences. It's about the gospel, it's the word of God, and whether or not there's a fruit from that, a real faith that results in the worship of God through Jesus and a life that begins to trust and follow Jesus. And so all of this, this, I think, is just meant to encourage us to ask ourselves, you know, what are we depending on in terms of our assurance? Is it First, of, first and most of all, our assurance has to be in, in something that is outside of us, what Christ has done for us. And then secondly, we can look for evidence that there's something done in us. But there are times even when we wonder if there's much done in us. And many have said, Spurgeon and others, our greatest assurance is in what Christ has done for us. Even in those days when we don't see much evidence of what he's done in us, yet our prayer should be, Lord, help me to trust more. Help me to love more. Help me to see more fruit of the Spirit in my life and grant me a greater assurance. But may my assurance not be based on my experience of dreams or anything else. May it be based on something that was done apart from what I do, which is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would speak to us. You know where we are this morning. You know what we're thinking and feeling, what we've experienced this week, what we've experienced in our life. You know how we need to trust you. You know how how we need to trust the Lord Jesus. You know how we need to love in light of the people in our lives. You know whether or not we feel clean or not. And what we need to do in light of that. Father, we just pray that you would apply the word by your spirit to our lives. And help us to pray even now in light of what you've said to us through your word. And I pray that you'd meet the deepest needs of our heart for you. Whether it be to trust in Christ for the first time and to give him our lives or whether it be to trust Christ in fresh and new ways as a child of God, we just pray that you would meet us and encourage us as we prepare to partake of this Lord's Supper. We thank you that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for us. We thank you that we can be clean, and we are clean through faith in Jesus alone. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.